Act Three of Major Barbara by George Bernard Shaw. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Next day after lunch, Lady Britomart is writing in the library in Wilton Crescent. Sarah is reading in the armchair near the window. Barbara, in ordinary dress, pale and brooding, is on the settee. Charlie Lomax enters. Coming forward between the settee and the writing table, he starts on seeing Barbara fashionably attired and in low spirits. You've left off your uniform. Barbara says nothing, but an expression of pain passes over her face, warning him in low tones to be careful. Charles. Much concerned, sitting down sympathetically on the settee beside Barbara. I'm awfully sorry, Barbara. You know I helped you all I could with the concertina and so forth. Still, I have never shut my eyes to the fact that there is a certain amount of tosh about the Salvation Army. Now, the claims of the Church of England— That's enough, Charles. Speak of something suited to your mental capacity. But surely the Church of England is suited to all our capacities. Pressing his hand. Thank you for your sympathy, Cholly. Now go and spoon with Sarah. Rising and going to Sarah. How is my ownest today? I wish you wouldn't tell Charlie to do things, Barbara. He always comes straight and does them. Charlie, we're going to the works at Perival St. Andrews this afternoon. What works? The cannon works. What, your governor's shop? Yes. Oh, I say! Cusins enters in poor condition. He also starts visibly when he sees Barbara without her uniform. I expected you this morning, Dolly. Didn't you guess that? Sitting down beside her. I'm sorry, I have only just breakfasted. But we've just finished lunch. Have you had one of your bad nights? No, I had a rather good night. In fact, one of the most remarkable nights I have ever passed. The meeting? No, after the meeting. You should have gone to bed after the meeting. What were you doing? Drinking. Adolphus. Dolly! Dolly! Oh, I say! What were you drinking, may I ask? A most devilish kind of Spanish burgundy, warranted free from added alcohol. A temperance burgundy, in fact. Its richness in natural alcohol made any addition superfluous. Are you joking, Dolly? No, I have been making a night of it with the nominal head of this household. That is all. Andrew made you drunk. No, he only provided the wine. I think it was Dionysus who made me drunk. To Barbara. I told you I was possessed. You're not sober yet. Go home to bed at once. I have never before ventured to reproach you, Lady Brit, but how could you marry the Prince of Darkness? It was much more excusable to marry him than to get drunk with him. That is a new accomplishment of Andrew's, by the way. He usent to drink. He doesn't now. He only sat there and completed the wreck of my moral basis, the rout of my convictions, the purchase of my soul. He cares for you, Barbara. That's what makes him so dangerous to me. That has nothing to do with it, Dolly. There are larger loves and diviner dreams than the fireside ones. You know that, don't you? Yes, that is our understanding. I know it. I hold to it. Unless he can win me on that holier ground, he may amuse me for a while. But he can get no deeper hold, strong as he is. Keep to that, and the end will be all right. Now tell me what happened at the meeting. 
It was an amazing meeting. Mrs. Baines almost died of emotion. Jenny Hill went stark mad with hysteria. The Prince of Darkness played his trombone like a madman. Its brazen roarings were like the laughter of the damned. One hundred seventeen conversions took place then and there. They prayed with the most touching sincerity and gratitude for Bodger, and for the anonymous donor of the five thousand pounds. Your father would not let his name be given. That was rather fine of the old man, you know. Most chaps would have wanted the advertisement. He said all the charitable institutions would be down on him like kites on a battlefield if he gave his name. That's Andrew all over. He never does a proper thing without giving an improper reason for it. He convinced me that I have all my life been doing improper things for proper reasons. Adolphus, now that Barbara has left the Salvation Army, you had better leave it too. I will not have you playing that drum in the streets. Your orders are already obeyed, Lady Brit. Dolly, were you ever really in earnest about it? Would you have joined if you had never seen me? Well, er, uh, well, possibly, as a collector of religions. Not as a drummer, though, you know. You are a very clear-headed, brainy chap, Cholly, and it must have been apparent to you that there is a certain amount of tosh about— Charles, if you must drivel, drivel like a grown-up man, and not like a schoolboy. Out of countenance. Well, drivel is drivel, don't you know, whatever a man's age. In good society in England, Charles, men drivel at all ages, by repeating silly formulas with an air of wisdom. Schoolboys make their own formulas out of slang, like you. When they reach your age and get political private secretaryships and things of that sort, they drop slang and get their formulas out of the spectator or the times. You had better confine yourself to the times. You will find that there is a certain amount of tosh about the times. But at least its language is reputable. You are so awfully strong-minded, Lady Brit. Rubbish. Morrison comes in. What is it? If you please, my lady, Mr. Undershaft has just drove up to the door. Well, let him in. Morrison hesitates. What's the matter with you? Shall I announce him, my lady, or is he at home here, so to speak, my lady? Announce him. Thank you, my lady. You won't mind my asking, I hope. The occasion is, in a manner of speaking, new to me. Quite right. Go and let him in. Thank you, my lady. He withdraws. Children, go and get ready. Sarah and Barbara go upstairs for their out-of-door wrap. Charles, go and tell Stephen to come down here in five minutes. You will find him in the drawing-room. Charles goes. Adolphus, tell them to send round the carriage in about fifteen minutes. Adolphus goes. At the door. Mr. Undershaft. Undershaft comes in. Morrison goes out. Alone. How fortunate. Rising. Don't be sentimental, Andrew. Sit down. She sits on the settee. He sits beside her, on her left. She comes to the point before he has time to breathe. Sarah must have eight hundred pounds a year until Charles Lomax comes into his property. Barbara will need more, and need it permanently, because Adolphus hasn't any property. Yes, my dear, I will see to it. Anything else? For yourself, for instance? I want to talk to you about Stephen. Don't, my dear. Stephen doesn't interest me. He does interest me. He is our son. Do you really think so? He has induced us to bring him into the world, but he chose his parents very incongruously, I think. I see nothing of myself in him, and less of you. Andrew, Stephen is an excellent son, and a most steady, capable, high-minded young man. You are simply trying to find an excuse for disinheriting him. 
my dear biddy the undershaft tradition disinherits him it would be dishonest of me to leave the cannon foundry to my son it would be most unnatural and improper of you to leave it to any one else andrew do you suppose this wicked and immoral tradition can be kept up for ever do you pretend that stephen could not carry on the foundry just as well as all the other sons of the big business houses yes he could learn the office routine without understanding the business like all the other sons and the firm would go on by its own momentum until the real undershaft probably an italian or a german would invent a new method and cut him out there is nothing that any italian or german could do that stephen could not do and stephen at least has breeding the son of a foundling nonsense my son andrew and even you may have good blood in your veins for all you know true probably i have that is another argument in favour of a foundling andrew don't be aggravating and don't be wicked at present you are both this conversation is part of the undershaft tradition biddy every undershaft's wife has treated him to it ever since the house was founded it is a mere waste of breath if the tradition be ever broken it will be for an abler man than stephen pouting then go away go away yes go away if you will do nothing for stephen you are not wanted here go to your foundling whoever he is and look after him the fact is biddy don't call me biddy i don't call you andy i will not call my wife britomart it is not good sense seriously my love the undershaft tradition has landed me in a difficulty i am getting on in years and my partner lazarus has at last made a stand and insisted that the succession must be settled one way or the other and of course he is quite right you see i haven't found a fit successor yet there is stephen that's just it all the foundlings i can find are exactly like stephen andrew i want a man with no relations and no schooling that is a man who would be out of the running altogether if he were not a strong man and i can't find him every blessed foundling nowadays is snapped up in his infancy by barnardo homes or school board officers or boards of guardians and if he shows the least ability he is fastened on by schoolmasters trained to win scholarships like a racehorse crammed with second-hand ideas drilled and disciplined in docility and what they call good taste and lamed for life so that he is fit for nothing but teaching if you want to keep the foundry in the family you'd better find an eligible foundling and marry him to barbara ah barbara your pet you would sacrifice stephen to barbara cheerfully and you my dear would boil barbara to make soup for stephen andrew this is not a question of our likings and dislikings it is a question of duty it is your duty to make stephen your successor just as much as it is your duty to submit to your husband come biddy these tricks of the governing class are of no use with me i am one of the governing class myself and it is a waste of time giving tracts to a missionary i have the power in this matter and i am not to be humbugged into using it for your purposes andrew you can talk my head off but you can't change wrong into right and your tie is all on one side put it straight it won't stay unless it's pinned he fumbles at it with childish grimaces Stephen comes in at the door i beg your pardon about to retire no come in Stephen. 
Stephen comes forward to his mother's writing table. Good afternoon. Oh, good afternoon. To Lady Britomart. He knows all about the tradition, I suppose. Yes. To Stephen. It is what I told you last night, Stephen. I understand you want to come into the cannon business. I go in the trade? Certainly not. Opening his eyes, greatly eased in mind and manner. Oh, in that case. Cannons are not trade, Stephen. They are enterprise. I have no intention of becoming a man of business in any sense. I have no capacity for business and no taste for it. I intend to devote myself to politics. Rising. My dear boy, this is an immense relief to me, and I trust it may prove an equally good thing for the country. I was afraid you would consider yourself disparaged and slighted. He moves toward Stephen as if to shake hands with him, rising and interposing. Stephen, I cannot allow you to throw away an enormous property like this. Mother, there must be an end of treating me as a child, if you please. Lady Britomart recoils, deeply wounded by his tone. Until last night I did not take your attitude seriously, because I did not think you meant it seriously. But I find now that you left me in the dark as to matters which you should have explained to me years ago. I am extremely hurt and offended. Any further discussions of my intentions had better take place with my father, as between one man and another. Stephen! She sits down again, and her eyes fill with tears, with grave compassion. You see, my dear, it is only the big men who can be treated as children. I am sorry, mother, that you forced me stopping him yes 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 that's all right stephen she won't interfere with you any more your independence is achieved you have won your latch-key don't rub it in and above all don't apologize he resumes his seat now what about your future as between one man and another i beg your pardon biddy as between two men and a woman who has pulled herself together strongly i quite understand stephen by all means go your own way if you feel strong enough Stephen sits down magisterially in the chair at the writing-table, with an air of affirming his majority. It is settled that you do not ask for the succession to the cannon business. I hope it is settled that I repudiate the cannon business. Come, come, don't be so devilishly sulky. It's boyish. Freedom should be generous. Besides, I owe you a fair start in life in exchange for disinheriting you. You can't become prime minister all at once. Haven't you a turn for something? What about literature, art, and so forth? I have nothing of the artist about me, either in faculty or character, thank heaven. A philosopher, perhaps, eh? I make no such ridiculous pretension. Just so. Well, there is the army, the navy, the church, the bar. The bar requires some ability. What about the bar? I have not studied law, and I am afraid I have not the necessary push. I believe it is the name barristers give to their vulgarity for success in pleading. Rather a difficult case, Stephen. Hardly anything left but the stage, is there? Stephen makes an impatient movement. Well, come, is there anything you know or care for? Rising and looking at him steadily. I know the difference between right and wrong. Hugely tickled. You don't say so. 
what no capacity for business no knowledge of law no sympathy with art no pretension to philosophy only a simple knowledge of the secret that has puzzled all the philosophers baffled all the lawyers muddled all the men of business and ruined most of the artists the secret of right and wrong why man you're a genius master of masters a god at twenty-four too keeping his temper with difficulty you are pleased to be facetious i pretend to nothing more than any honourable english gentleman claims as his birthright he sits down angrily oh that's everybody's birthright look at poor little jenny hill the salvation lassie she would think you were laughing at her if you asked her to stand up in the street and teach grammar or geography or mathematics or even drawing-room dancing but it never occurs to her to doubt that she can teach morals and religion you are all alike you respectable people you can't tell me the bursting strain of a ten-inch gun which is a very simple matter but you all think you can tell me the bursting strain of a man under temptation you daren't handle high explosives but you're all ready to handle honesty and truth and justice and the whole duty of man and kill one another at that game what a country what a world what do you think he better do andrew oh just what he wants to do he knows nothing and he thinks he knows everything that points clearly to a political career get him a private secretaryship to someone who can get him an under-secretaryship and then leave him alone he will find his natural and proper place in the end on the treasury bench springing up again i am sorry sir that you force me to forget the respect due to you as my father i am an englishman and i will not hear the government of my country insulted he thrusts his hands into his pockets and walks angrily across to the window with a touch of brutality the government of your country i am the government of your country i and lazarus do you suppose that you and half a dozen amateurs like you sitting in a row in that foolish gabble shop can govern under shaft and lazarus no my friend you will do what pays us you will make war when it suits us and keep peace when it doesn't you will find out that trade requires certain measures when we have decided on those measures when i want anything to keep my dividends up you will discover that my want is a national need when other people want something to keep my dividends down you will call out the police and military and in return you shall have the support and applause of my newspapers and the delight of imagining that you are a great statesman government of your country be off with you my boy and play with your caucuses and leading articles and historic parties and great leaders and burning questions and the rest of your toys i am going back to my counting-house to pay the piper and call the tune actually smiling and putting his hand on his father's shoulder with indulgent patronage really my dear father it is impossible to be angry with you you don't know how absurd all this sounds to me you are very properly proud of having been industrious enough to make money and it is greatly to your credit that you have made so much of it but it has kept you in circles where you are valued for your money and deferred to for it instead of in the doubtless very old-fashioned and behind-the-times public school and universities where i formed my habits of mind it is natural for you to think that money governs england but you must allow me to think i know better and what does govern england pray character father character whose character 
yours or mine neither yours nor mine father but the best elements in the english national character stephen i've found your profession for you you're a born journalist i'll start you with a high-toned weekly review there stephen goes to the smaller writing-table and busies himself with his letters sarah barbara lomax and cusins come in ready for walking barbara crosses the room to the window and looks out cusins drifts amiably to the armchair and lomax remains near the door whilst sarah comes to her mother go and get ready mamma the carriage is waiting lady britomart leaves the room good day my dear good afternoon mr lomax how do you do to cusins quite well after last night euripides eh as well as can be expected that's right to barbara so you are coming to see my death and devastation factory barbara at the window you came yesterday to see my salvation factory i promised you a return visit coming forward between sarah and undershaft you'll find it wonderfully interesting i've been through the woolwich arsenal and it gives you a ripping feeling of security you know to think of the lot of beggars we could kill if it came to fighting to undershaft with sudden solemnity still it must be rather an awful reflection for you from the religious point of view as it were you're getting on and all that you know you don't mind charlie's imbecility papa do you much taken aback oh i say mr lomax looks at the matter in a very proper spirit my dear just so that's all i meant i assure you are you coming stephen well i am rather busy oh well yes i'll come that is if there is room for me i can take two with me in a little motor i am experimenting with for field use you won't mind its being rather unfashionable it's not painted yet but it's bullet-proof appalled at the prospect of confronting wilton crescent in an unpainted motor oh i say the carriage for me thank you barbara doesn't mind what she's seen in uh, i say dolly old chap uh, do you really mind the car being a guy because if you do i'll go and it's still i prefer it thanks awfully old man come sarah he hurries out to secure his seat in the carriage sarah follows him moodily walking across to lady britomart's writing-table why is it we two are coming to this work department of hell that is what i ask myself i have always thought of it as a sort of pit where lost creatures with blackened faces stirred up smoky fires and were driven and tormented by my father is it like that dad my dear it is a spotlessly clean and beautiful hillside town with a methodist chapel oh do say there's a methodist chapel there are two a primitive one and a sophisticated one there is even an ethical society but it is not much patronized as my men are all strongly religious in the high explosives sheds they object to the presence of agnostics as unsafe and yet they don't object to you do they obey all your orders i never give them any orders when i speak to one of them it is well jones is the baby doing well and has mrs jones made a good recovery nicely thank you sir and that's all but jones has to be kept in order how do you maintain discipline among your men i don't they do you see the one thing jones won't stand is any rebellion from the man under him or any assertion of social equality between the wife of the man with four shillings a week less than himself and mrs jones of course they all rebel against me theoretically 
practically every man of them keeps the man just below him in his place i never meddle with them i never bully them i don't even bully lazarus i say that certain things are to be done but i don't order anybody to do them i don't say mind you that there is no ordering about and snubbing and even bullying the men snub the boys and order them about the carmen snub the sweepers the artisans snub the unskilled laborers the foremen drive and bully both the laborers and artisans the assistant engineers find fault with the foremen the chief engineers drop on the assistants the departmental managers worry the chiefs and the clerks have tall hats and hymn-books and keep up the social tone by refusing to associate on equal terms with anybody the result is a colossal profit which comes to me you really are a-well what i said yesterday what was he saying yesterday never mind my dear he thinks i have made you unhappy have i do you think i can be happy in this vulgar silly dress i who have worn the uniform do you understand what you have done to me yesterday i had a man's soul in my hand i set him in the way of life with his face to salvation but when we took your money he turned back to drunkenness and derision i will never forgive you that if i had a child and you destroyed its body with your explosives if you murdered dolly with your horrible guns i could forgive you if my forgiveness would open the gates of heaven to you but to take a human soul from me and turn it into the soul of a wolf that is worse than any murder does my daughter despair so easily can you strike a man to the heart and leave no mark on him her face lighting up oh you are right he can never be lost now where was my faith oh clever clever devil you may be a devil but god speaks through you sometimes she takes her father's hands and kisses them you have given me back my happiness i feel it deep down now though my spirit is troubled you have learnt something that always feels at first as if you had lost something well take me to the factory of death and let me learn something more there must be some truth or other behind all this frightful irony come dolly she goes out my guardian angel to undershaft avaunt he follows barbara you must not mind cusin's father he is a very amiable good fellow but he is a greek scholar and naturally a little eccentric ah quite so thank you stephen thank you he goes out stephen smiles patronizingly buttons his coat responsibly and crosses the room to the door lady Brittemart, dressed for out of doors opens it before he reaches it she looks round for the others looks at stephen and turns to go without a word uh, mother don't be apologetic stephen and don't forget that you have outgrown your mother she goes out paravel st andrews lies between two middlesex hills half climbing the northern one it is an almost smokeless town of white walls roofs of narrow green slates or red tiles tall trees domes campaniles and slender chimney shafts beautifully situated and beautiful in itself the best view of it is obtained from the crest of a slope about a half a mile to the east where the high explosives are dealt with the foundry lies hidden in the depths between 
the tops of its chimneys sprouting like huge skittles into the middle distance. Across the crest runs a platform of concrete, with a parapet which suggests a fortification, because there is a huge cannon of the obsolete Woolwich infant pattern peering across it at the town. The cannon is mounted on an experimental gun carriage, possibly the original model of the undershaft disappearing rampart gun alluded to by Stephen. The parapet has a high step inside which serves as a seat. Barbara is leaning over the parapet, looking toward the town. On her right is the cannon, on her left the end of a shed raised on piles, with a ladder of three or four steps up to the door, which opens outward and has a little wooden landing at the threshold, with a fire bucket in the corner of the landing. The parapet stops short of the shed, leaving a gap which is the beginning of the path down the hill through the foundry to the town. Behind the cannon is a trolley carrying a huge conical bombshell, with a red band painted on it. Further from the parapet, on the same side, is a deck chair near the door of an office, which, like the sheds, is of the lightest possible construction. Cusins arrives by the path from the town. Well? No ray of hope. Everything perfect, wonderful, real. It only needs a cathedral to be a heavenly city instead of a hellish one. Have you found out whether they have done anything for old Pete de Shirley? They have found him a job as a gatekeeper and timekeeper. He's frightfully miserable. He calls the timekeeping brainwork and says he isn't used to it, and his gate lodge is so splendid that he's ashamed to use the rooms, and he skulks in the scullery. Poor Peter. Stephen arrives from the town. He carries a field glass. Have you two seen the place? Why did you leave us? I wanted to see everything I was not intended to see, and Barbara wanted to make the men talk. Have you found anything discreditable? No, they call him Dandy Andy and are proud of him being a cunning old rascal, but it's all horribly, frightfully, immorally, unswearably perfect. Sarah arrives. Heavens, what a place! She crosses to the trolley. Did you see the nursing home? She sits down on the shell. Did you see the libraries and schools? Did you see the ballroom and the banqueting chamber in the town hall? Have you gone into the insurance fund, the pension fund, the building society, the various applications of cooperation? Undershaft comes from the office, with a sheaf of telegrams in his hands. Well, have you seen everything? I'm sorry I was called away. Indicating the telegrams. News from Manchuria. Good news, I hope. Very. Another Japanese victory? Oh, I don't know. Which side wins does not concern us here. No, the good news is that the aerial battleship is a tremendous success. At the first trial, it has wiped out a fort with three hundred soldiers in it. From the platform. Dummy soldiers? No, the real thing. Cusins and Barbara exchange glances. Then Cusins sits on the step and buries his face in his hands. Barbara gravely lays her hand on his shoulder and he looks up at her in a sort of whimsical desperation. Well, Stephen, what do you think of the place? Oh, magnificent! A perfect triumph of organization! Frankly, my dear father, I have been a fool. I had no idea what it all meant of the wonderful forethought, the power of organization, the administrative capacity, the financial genius, the colossal capital it represents. 
i have been repeating to myself as i came through your streets peace hath her victories no less renowned than war i have only one misgiving about it all out with it well i cannot help thinking that all this provision for every want of your workmen may sap their independence and weaken their sense of responsibility and greatly as we enjoyed our tea at that splendid restaurant how they gave us all that luxury and cake and jam and cream for three pence i really cannot imagine still you must remember that restaurants break up home life look at the continent for instance are you sure so much pampering is really good for the men's characters well you see my dear boy when you are organizing civilization you have to make up your mind whether trouble and anxiety are good things or not if you decide that they are then i take it you simply don't organize civilization and there you are with trouble and anxiety enough to make us all angels but if you decide the other way you may as well go through with it however stephen our characters are safe here a sufficient dose of anxiety is always provided by the fact that we may be blown to smithereens at any moment by the way papa where do you make the explosives in separate little sheds like that one when one of them blows up it costs very little and only the people quite close to it are killed stephen who is quite close to it looks at it rather scaredly and moves away quickly to the cannon at the same moment the door of the shed is thrown abruptly open and a foreman in overalls and list slippers comes out on the little landing and holds the door open for lomax who appears in the doorway my good fellow you needn't get into a state of nerves nothing's going to happen to you and i suppose it wouldn't be the end of the world if anything did a little bit of british pluck is what you want old chap he descends and strolls across to sarah to the foreman anything wrong bilton gentlemen walked into the high explosive shed and lit a cigar sir that's all ah quite so to lomax do you happen to remember what you did with the match oh come i'm not a fool i took jolly good care to blow it out before i chucked it away the top of it was red-hot inside sir well suppose it was i didn't chuck it into any of your messes think no more of it mr lomax by the way would you mind lending me your matches offering his box certainly thanks he pockets the matches lecturing to the company generally you know these high explosives don't go off like gunpowder except when they're in a gun when they're spread loose you can put a match to them without the least risk they'll just burn quietly like a bit of paper warming to the scientific interest of the subject did you know that undershaft have you ever tried not on a large scale mr lomax bilton will give you a sample of gun cotton when you are leaving if you ask him you can experiment with it at home bilton looks puzzled bilton will do nothing of the sort papa i suppose it's your business to blow up the russians and japs but you might really stop short of blowing up poor charlie bilton gives it up and retires into the shed my earnest there is no danger he sits beside her on the shell lady britomart arrives from the town with a bouquet coming impetuously between undershaft and the deck-chair andrew you shouldn't have let me see this place why my dear never mind why you shouldn't have that's all to think of all that indicating the town being yours and that you have kept it to yourself all these years 
it does not belong to me i belong to it it is the undershaft inheritance it is not your ridiculous cannons and that noisy banging foundry may be the undershaft inheritance but all that plate and linen all that furniture and those houses and orchards and gardens belong to us they belong to me they are not a man's business i won't give them up you must be out of your senses to throw them all away and if you persist in such folly i will call in a doctor stooping to smell the bouquet where did you get the flowers my dear your men presented them to me in your william morris labor church springing up oh it only needed that a labor church yes with morris's words in mosaic letters ten feet high round the dome no man is good enough to be another man's master the cynicism of it it shocked the men at first i am afraid but now they take no more notice of it than of the ten commandments in church andrew you are trying to put me off the subject of the inheritance by profane jokes well you shan't i don't ask it any longer for stephen he has inherited far too much of your perversity to be fit for it but barbara has rights as well as stephen why should not adolphus succeed to the inheritance i could manage the town for him and he could look after the cannons if they are really necessary i should ask nothing better if adolphus were a foundling he is exactly the sort of new blood that is wanted in english business but he's not a foundling there's an end of it not quite they all turn and stare at him he comes from the platform past the shed to undershaft i think mind i'm not committing myself in any way to my future course but i think the foundling difficulty can be got over what do you mean well i have something to say which is in the nature of a confession 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 oh i say yes a confession listen all until i met barbara i thought myself in the main an honourable truthful man because i wanted the approval of my conscience more than anything else but the moment i saw barbara i wanted her far more than the approval of my conscience adolphus it is true you accused me yourself lady brit of joining the army to worship barbara and so i did she bought my soul like a flower at a street corner but she bought it for herself what not for dionysus or another dionysus and all the others are in herself i adore what was divine in her and was therefore a true worshipper but i was romantic about her too i thought she was a woman of the people and that a marriage with a professor of greek would be far beyond the wildest social ambitions of her rank adolphus oh i say when i learnt the horrible truth what do you mean by the horrible truth pray that she was enormously rich that her grandfather was an earl that her father was the prince of darkness Chut. and that i was only an adventurer trying to catch a rich wife then i stooped to deceive about my birth your birth now adolphus don't dare to make up a wicked story for the sake of these wretched cannons remember i have seen photographs of your parents and the agent-general for southwestern australia knows them personally and has assured me that they are most respectable married people so they are in australia but here they are outcasts their marriage is legal in australia but not in england my mother is my father's deceased wife's sister and in this island i am consequently a foundling sensation is the subterfuge good enough machiavelli biddy this may be a way out of the difficulty stuff a man can't make cannons any the better for being his own cousin instead of his proper self 
She sits down in the deck-chair with a bounce that expresses her downright contempt for their casuistry. To Cusins. You are an educated man. That is against the tradition. Once in ten thousand times it happens that the schoolboy is the born master of what they try to teach him. Greek has not destroyed my mind, it has nourished it. Besides, I did not learn it at an English public school. Hmm. Well, I cannot afford to be too particular. You have cornered the foundling market. Let it pass. You are eligible, Euripides. You are eligible. Coming from the platform, and interposing between Cusins and Undershaft. Dolly, yesterday morning when Stephen told us all about the tradition you became very silent, and you have been strange and excited ever since. Were you thinking of your birth, then? When the finger of destiny suddenly points at a man in the middle of his breakfast, it makes him thoughtful. Barbara turns away sadly, and stands near her mother, listening perturbedly. Aha! You have had your eye on the business, my young friend, have you? Take care. There is an abyss of moral horror between me and your accursed aerial battleships. Never mind the abyss for the present. Let us settle the practical details and leave your final decision open. You know that you will have to change your name. Do you object to that? Would any man named Adolphus, any man called Dolly, object to being called something else? Good. Now, as to money, I propose to treat you handsomely from the beginning. You shall start at a thousand a year. With sudden heat, his spectacles twinkling with mischief. A thousand? You dare offer me a miserable thousand to the son-in-law of a millionaire? No, by heavens, Machiavelli, you shall not cheat me. You cannot do without me, and I can do without you. I must have two thousand five hundred a year for two years. At the end of that time, if I am a failure, I go. But if I am a success, and stay on, you must give me the other five thousand. What other five thousand? To make the two years up to five thousand a year. The two thousand five hundred is only half pay in case I should turn out a failure. The third year I must have ten percent on the profits. Taken aback. Ten percent? Why, man, do you know what my profits are? Enormous, I hope. Otherwise I should require twenty-five per cent. But, Mr. Cusins, this is a serious matter of business. You are not bringing any capital into the concern. What? No capital? Is my mastery of Greek no capital? Is my access to the subtlest thought, the loftiest poetry yet attained by humanity, no capital? My character, my intelligence, my life, my career, what Barbara calls my soul, are these no capital? Say another word, and I double my salary. Be reasonable. Mr. Undershaft, you have my terms. Take them or leave them. Recovering himself. Very well. I note your terms, and I offer you half. Half? Half. You call yourself a gentleman, and you offer me half? I do not call myself a gentleman, but I offer you half. This is your future partner, your successor, your son-in-law. You are selling your own soul, Dolly, not mine. Leave me out of the bargain, please. Come, I will go a step further for Barbara's sake. I will give you three-fifths, but that is my last word. Done. Done in the eye? Why, I only get eight hundred, you know. By the way, Mac, I am a classical scholar, not an arithmetical one. Is three-fifths more than half or less? More, of course. I would have taken two hundred and fifty. How can you succeed in business when you are willing to pay all that money to a university don who is obviously not worth a junior clerk's wages? Well, what will Lazarus say? 
lazarus is a gentle romantic jew who cares for nothing but string quartets and stalls at fashionable theatres he will get the credit of your rapacity and money matters as he has hitherto had the credit of mine you are a shark of the first order euripides so much the better for the firm is the bargain closed dolly does your soul belong to him now no the price is settled that is all the real tug of war is still to come what about the moral question there is no moral question in the matter at all adolphus you must simply sell cannons and weapons to people whose cause is right and just and refuse them to foreigners and criminals no none of that you must keep the true faith of an armorer or you don't come in here what on earth is the true faith of an armorer to give arms to all men who offer an honest price for them without respect of persons or principles to aristocrat and republican to nihilist and czar to capitalist and socialist to protestant and catholic to burglar and policeman to black man white man and yellow man to all sorts and conditions all nationalities all faiths all follies all causes and all crimes the first undershaft wrote up in his shop if god gave the hand let not man withhold the sword the second wrote up all have the right to fight none have the right to judge the third wrote up to man the weapon to heaven the victory the fourth had no literary turn so he did not write up anything but he sold cannons to napoleon under the nose of george the third the fifth wrote up peace shall not prevail save with a sword in her hand the sixth my master was the best of all he wrote up nothing is ever done in this world until men are prepared to kill one another if it is not done after that there was nothing left for the seventh to say so he wrote up simply unashamed my good machiavelli i shall certainly write something up on the wall only as i shall write it in greek you won't be able to read it but as your armourer's faith if i take my neck out of the noose of my own morality i'm not going to put it into the noose of yours i shall sell cannons to whom i please and refuse them to whom i please so there from the moment when you become andrew undershaft you will never do as you please again don't come here lusting for power young man if power were my aim i should not come here for it you have no power none of my own certainly i have more power than you more will you do not drive this place it drives you and what drives this place a will of which i am a part father do you know what you are saying or are you laying a snare for my soul don't listen to his metaphysics barbara this place is driven by the most rascally part of society the money hunters the pleasure hunters the military promotion hunters and he is their slave not necessarily remember the armorer's faith i will take an order from a good man as cheerfully as from a bad one if you good people prefer preaching and shirking to buying my weapons and fighting the rascals don't blame me i can make cannons i cannot make courage and conviction bah you tire me euripides with your morality mongering ask barbara she understands tell him my love what power really means before i joined the salvation army i was in my own power and the consequence was that i never knew what to do with myself when i joined it i had not time enough for all the things i had to do just so 
and why was that do you suppose yesterday i should have said because i was in the power of god but you came and showed me that i was in the power of bodger and undershaft to-day i feel oh how can i put it into words sarah do you remember the earthquake at cannes when we were little children how little the surprise of the first shock mattered compared to the dread and horror of waiting for the second. That is how I feel in this place to-day. I stood on the rock I thought eternal, and without a word of warning it reeled and crumbled under me. I was safe with an infinite wisdom watching me, an army marching to salvation with me, and in a moment, at a stroke of your pen and a cheque-book, I stood alone and the heavens were empty. That was the first shock of the earthquake. I am waiting for the second. Come, come, my daughter, don't make too much of your little tin-pot tragedy. What do we do here when we spend years of work and thought and thousands of pounds of solid cash on a new gun or an aerial battleship that turns out just a hair's breadth wrong after all? Scrap it. Scrap it without wasting another hour or another pound on it well you have made for yourself something that you call a morality or a religion or what not it doesn't fit the facts well scrap it scrap it and get one that does fit that is what is wrong with the world at present it scraps its obsolete steam engines and dynamos but it won't scrap its old prejudices and its old moralities and its old religions and its old political constitutions what's the result in machinery it does very well but in morals and religion and politics it is working at a loss that brings it nearer bankruptcy every year don't persist in that folly if your old religion broke down yesterday get a newer and a better one for to-morrow oh how gladly i would take a better one to my soul but you offer me a worse one turning on him with sudden vehemence justify yourself show me some light through the darkness of this dreadful place with its beautifully clean workshops and respectable workmen and model homes cleanliness and respectability do not need justification barbara they justify themselves i see no darkness here no dreadfulness in your salvation shelter i saw poverty misery cold and hunger you gave them bread and treacle and dreams of heaven i give from thirty shillings a week to twelve thousand a year they find their own dreams but i look after the drainage and their souls i save their souls just as i saved yours you saved my soul what do you mean i fed you and clothed you and housed you i took care that you should have money enough to live handsomely more than enough so that you could be wasteful careless generous that saved your soul from the seven deadly sins the seven deadly sins yes the deadly seven food clothing firing rent taxes respectability and children nothing can lift those seven millstones from man's neck but money and the spirit cannot soar until the millstones are lifted i lifted them from your spirit i enabled barbara to become major barbara and i saved her from the crime of poverty do you call poverty a crime the worst of crimes all the other crimes are virtues beside it all the other dishonours are chivalry itself by comparison 
poverty blights whole cities spreads horrible pestilences strikes dead the very souls of all who come within sight sound or smell of it what you call a crime is nothing a murder here and a theft there a blow now and a curse then what do they matter they are only the accidents and illnesses of life there are not fifty genuine professional criminals in london but there are millions of poor people abject people dirty people ill-fed ill-clothed people they poison us morally and physically they kill the happiness of society they force us to do away with our own liberties and to organize unnatural cruelties for fear they should rise against us and drag us down into their abyss only fools fear crime we all fear poverty Pah! turning to barbara you talk of your half-saved ruffian in west ham you accuse me of dragging his soul back to perdition well bring him to me here and i will drag his soul back again to salvation for you not by words and dreams but by thirty-eight shillings a week a sound house in a handsome street and a permanent job in three weeks he will have a fancy waistcoat in three months a tall hat and a chapel sitting before the end of the year he will shake hands with the duchess at a primrose league meeting and join the conservative party and he will be the better for that you know he will don't be a hypocrite barbara he will be better fed better housed better clothed better behaved and his children will be pounds heavier and bigger that will be better than an american cloth mattress in a shelter chopping firewood eating bread and treacle and being forced to kneel down from time to time to thank heaven for it knee drill i think you call it it is cheap work converting starving men with a bible in one hand and a slice of bread in the other i will undertake to convert west ham to mahometanism on the same terms try your hand on my men their souls are hungry because their bodies are full and leave the east end to starve i was an east ender i moralized and starved until one day i swore that i would be a full-fed free man at all costs that nothing should stop me except a bullet neither reason nor morals nor the lives of other men i said thou shalt starve ere i starve and with that word i became free and great i was a dangerous man until i had my will now i am a useful beneficent kindly person that is the history of most self-made millionaires i fancy when it is the history of every englishman we shall have an england worth living in stop making speeches andrew this is not the place for them my dear i have no other means of conveying my ideas your ideas are nonsense you got oil because you were selfish and unscrupulous not at all i had the strongest scruples about poverty and starvation your moralists are quite unscrupulous about both they make virtues of them i had rather be a thief than a pauper i had rather be a murderer than a slave i don't want to be either but if you force the alternative on me then by heaven i'll choose the braver and more moral one i hate poverty and slavery worse than any other crimes whatsoever and let me tell you this poverty and slavery have stood up for centuries to your sermons and leading articles they will not stand up to my machine-guns don't preach at them don't reason with them kill them killing is that your remedy for everything it is the final test of conviction 
the only lever strong enough to overturn a social system the only way of saying must let six hundred and seventy fools loose in the street and three policemen can scatter them but huddle them together in a certain house in westminster and let them go through certain ceremonies and call themselves certain names until at last they get the courage to kill and your six hundred and seventy fools become a government your pious mob fills up ballot-papers and imagines it is governing its masters but the ballot-paper that really governs is the paper that has a bullet wrapped up in it that is perhaps why like most intelligent people i never vote vote bah when you vote you only change the names of the cabinet when you shoot you pull down governments inaugurate new epochs abolish old orders and set up new is that historically true mr learned man or is it not it is historically true i loathe having to admit it i repudiate your sentiments i abhor your nature i defy you in every possible way still it is true but it ought not to be true ought 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 are you going to spend your life saying ought like the rest of our moralists turn your oughts into shalls man come and make explosives with me whatever can blow men up can blow society up the history of the world is the history of those who had courage enough to embrace this truth have you the courage to embrace it barbara barbara i positively forbid you to listen to your father's abominable wickedness and you adolphus ought to know better than to go about saying that wrong things are true what does it matter whether they are true if they are wrong what does it matter whether they are wrong if they are true rising children come home instantly andrew i am exceedingly sorry i allowed you to call on us you are wickeder than ever come at once shaking her head it's no use running away from wicked people mamma it is every use it shows your disapprobation of them it does not save them i can see that you are going to disobey me sarah are you coming home or are you not i dare say it's very wicked of papa to make cannons but i don't think i shall cut him on that account pouring oil on the troubled waters the fact is you know there is a certain amount of tosh about this notion of wickedness it doesn't work you, you must look at facts not that i would say a word in favour of anything wrong but then you see all sorts of chaps are always doing all sorts of things and we have to fit them in somehow don't you know what i mean is that you can't go cutting everybody and that's about what it comes to the rapt attention to his eloquence makes him nervous uh, perhaps i didn't make myself clear you are lucidity itself giles because andrew is successful and has plenty of money to give to sarah you will flatter him and encourage him in his wickedness well where the carcasses there will the eagles be gathered don't you know to undershaft eh what precisely by the way may i call you charles delighted charlie is the usual ticket to lady britomart biddy don't you dare call me biddy charles lomax you are a fool adolphus cusins you are a jesuit stephen you are a prig barbara you are a lunatic andrew you are a vulgar tradesman now you all know my opinion and my conscience is clear at all events she sits down again with a vehemence that almost wrecks the chair my dear you are the incarnation of morality she snorts your conscience is clear and your duty done when you have called everybody names come euripides it is getting late and we all want to get home make up your mind understand this you old demon 
adolphus let him alone biddy proceed euripides you have me in a horrible dilemma i want barbara like all young men you greatly exaggerate the difference between one young woman and another quite true dolly i also want to avoid being a rascal you lust for personal righteousness for self-approval for what you call a good conscience for what barbara calls salvation for what i call patronizing people who are not so lucky as yourself i do not all the poet in me recoils from being a good man but there are things in me that i must reckon with pity pity the scavenger of misery well love i know you love the needy and the outcast you love the oppressed races the negro the indian riot the pole the irishman do you love the japanese do you love the germans do you love the english no every true englishman detests the english we are the wickedest nation on earth and our success is a moral horror that is what comes of your gospel of love is it may i not love even my father-in-law who wants your love man by what right do you take the liberty of offering it to me i will have your due heed and respect or i will kill you but your love damn your impertinence grinning i may not be able to control my affections mac you are fencing euripides you are weakening your grip is slipping come try your last weapon pity and love have broken in your hand forgiveness is still left no forgiveness is a beggar's refuge i am with you there we must pay our debts well said come you will suit me remember the words of plato starting plato you dare quote plato to me plato says my friend that society cannot be saved until either the professors of greek take to making gunpowder or else the makers of gunpowder become professors of greek o oh, tempter cunning tempter come choose man choose but perhaps barbara will not marry me if i make the wrong choice perhaps not you hear father do you love nobody i love my best friend and who is that pray my bravest enemy that is the man who keeps me up to the mark you know the creature is really a sort of poet in his way suppose he is a great man after all suppose you stop talking and make up your mind my young friend but you are driving me against my nature i hate war hatred is the coward's revenge for being intimidated dare you make war on war here are the means my friend mr lomax is sitting on them springing up oh i say you don't mean that this thing is loaded do you my own is come off it sitting placidly on the shell if i am to be blown up the more thoroughly it is done the better don't fuss charlie to undershaft strongly remonstrant your own daughter you know so i see to cusins well my friend may we expect you here at six to-morrow morning not on any account i will see the whole establishment blown up with its own dynamite before i will get up at five my hours are healthy rational hours eleven to five come when you please before a week you will come at six and stay until i turn you out for the sake of your health milton he turns to lady britomart who rises my dear let us leave these two people to themselves for a moment milton comes from the shed i am going to take you through the gun-cotton shed barring the way you can't take anything explosive in here sir what do you mean are you alluding to me no ma'am mr undershaft has the other gentleman's matches in his pocket oh i beg your pardon she goes into the shed quite right bilton quite right here you are he gives bilton the box of matches come stephen come charles bring sarah 
he passes into the shed. Bilton opens the box and deliberately drops the matches into the fire bucket. Oh, I say! Bilton stolidly hands him the empty box. Infernal nonsense! Pure scientific ignorance! He goes in. Am I all right, Bilton? You'll have to put on list slippers, miss, that's all. We've got him inside. She goes in. Very seriously, to Cusins. Dolly, old fellow, think. Think before you decide. Do you feel that you are a sufficiently practical man? It is a huge undertaking, an enormous responsibility. All this mass of business will be Greek to you. Oh, I think it'll be much less difficult than Greek. Well, I just want to say this before I leave you to yourselves. Don't let anything I have said about right and wrong prejudice you against this great chance in life. I have satisfied myself that the business is one of the highest character and a credit to our country. I am very proud of my father. I... Unable to proceed, he presses Cusin's hand and goes hastily into the shed, followed by Bilson. Barbara and Cusins, left alone together, look at one another silently. Barbara, I'm going to accept this offer. I thought you would. You understand, don't you, that I had to decide without consulting you. If I had thrown the burden of the choice on you, you would sooner or later have despised me for it. Yes. I did not want you to sell your soul for me any more than for this inheritance. It is not the sale of my soul that troubles me. I've sold it too often to care about that. I have sold it for a professorship. I've sold it for an income. I've sold it to escape being imprisoned for refusing to pay my taxes, for hangman's ropes, and for unjust wars and things that I abhor. What is all human conduct but the daily and hourly sale of our souls for trifles? What I am now selling it for is neither money, nor position, nor comfort, but for reality, and for power. You know that you will have no power, and that he has none. I know. It is not for myself alone. I want to make power for the world. I want to make power for the world, too. But it must be spiritual power. I think all power is spiritual. These cannons will not go off by themselves. I have tried to make spiritual power by teaching Greek. But the world can never be really touched by a dead language and a dead civilization. The people must have power, and the people cannot have Greek. Now the power that is made here can be wielded by all men. Power to burn women's houses down, and kill their sons, and tear their husbands to pieces! You cannot have power for good without having power for evil, too. Even mother's milk nourishes murderers as well as heroes. This power, which only tears men's bodies to pieces, has never been so horribly abused as the intellectual power, the imaginative power, the poetic, religious power that can enslave men's souls. As a teacher of Greek, I gave the intellectual man weapons against the common man. I now want to give the common man weapons against the intellectual man. I love the common people. I want to arm them against the lawyer, the doctor, the priest, the literary man, the professor, the artist, and the politician who once, in authority, are the most dangerous, disastrous, and tyrannical of all the fools, rascals, and impostors. I want a democratic power strong enough to force the intellectual oligarchy to use its genius for the general good, or else perish. 
Is there no higher power than that? Pointing to the shell. Yes, but that power can destroy the higher powers just as a tiger can destroy man. Therefore man must master that power first. I admitted this when the Turks and Greeks were last at war. My best pupil went out to fight for Hellas. My parting gift to him was not a copy of Plato's Republic, but a revolver and a hundred undershaft cartridges. The blood of every Turk he shot, if he shot any, is on my head as well as on undershafts. The act committed me to this place forever. Your father's challenge has beaten me. Dare I make war on war? I dare. I must. I will. And now, is it all over between us? Touched by his evident dread of her answer. Silly baby Dolly. How could it be? Overjoyed. Then you, 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 oh, for my drum. He flourishes imaginary drumsticks, angered by his levity. Take care, Dolly, take care. Oh, if only I could get away from you and from father and from it all. If I could have the wings of a dove and fly away to heaven. And leave me. Yes, you, and all the other naughty, mischievous children of men. But I can't. I was happy in the Salvation Army for a moment. I escaped from the world into a paradise of enthusiasm and prayer and soul-saving. But the moment our money ran short it all came back to Bodger. It was he who saved our people, he, and the Prince of Darkness, my papa. Undershaft and Bodger, their hands stretch everywhere. When we feed a starving fellow-creature it is with their bread, because there is no other bread. When we tend the sick, it is in the hospitals they endow. If we turn from the churches they build, we must kneel on the stones of the streets they pave. As long as that lasts, there is no getting away from them. Turning our backs on Bodger and Undershaft is turning our backs on life. I thought you were determined to turn your back on the wicked side of life. There is no wicked side. Life is all one and I never wanted to shirk my share in whatever evil must be endured, whether it be sin or suffering. I wish I could cure you of middle-class ideas, Dolly. Middle-cl—a snub! A social snub to me, from the daughter of a foundling! That is why I have no class, Dolly. I come straight out of the heart of the whole people. If I were middle-class, I should turn my back on my father's business and we should both live in an artistic drawing-room, with you reading the reviews in one corner, and I in the other at the piano, playing Schumann. Both very superior persons, and neither of us a bit of use. Sooner than that I would sweep out the gun-cotton-shed, or be one of Bodger's barmaids. Do you know what would have happened if you had refused Papa's offer? I wonder. I should have given you up and married the man who accepted it. After all, my dear old mother has more sense than any of you. I felt like her when I saw this place, felt that I must have it, that never, never, never could I let it go. Only she thought it was the houses and the kitchen ranges and the linen and china, when it was really all the human souls to be saved, not weak souls and starved bodies, crying with gratitude or a scrap of bread and treacle, but full-fed quarrelsome, snobbish, uppish creatures, all standing on their little rights and dignities, and thinking that my father ought to be greatly obliged to them for making so much money for him. And so he ought. 
That is where salvation is really wanted. My father shall never throw it in my teeth again that my converts were bribed with bread. I have got rid of the bribe of bread. I have got rid of the bribe of heaven. Let God's work be done for its own sake, the work He had to create us to do because it cannot be done by living men and women. When I die, let Him be in my debt, not I in His, and let me forgive Him as becomes a woman of my rank. Then the way of life lies through the factory of death? Yes, through the raising of hell to heaven and of man to God, through the unveiling of an eternal light in the valley of the shadow. Seizing him with both hands. Oh, did you think my courage would never come back? Did you believe that I was a deserter? That I, who have stood in the streets and taken my people to my heart, and talked of the holiest and greatest things with them, could ever turn back and chatter foolishly to fashionable people about nothing in a drawing-room? <laughs> never, 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 never! Major Barbara will die with the colours. Oh, and I have my dear little dolly-boy still, and he has found me my place and my work. Glory, hallelujah! She kisses him. My dearest, consider my delicate health. I cannot stand as much happiness as you can. Yes, it is not easy work being in love with me, is it? But it's good for you. She runs to the shed and calls childlike. Mamma, Mamma. Bilton comes out of the shed, followed by Undershaft. I want Mamma. She is taking off her list slippers, dear. He passes on to Cusins. Well, what does she say? She has gone right up into the skies. Coming from the shed and stopping on the steps. Obstructing Sarah, who follows with Lomax, Barbara clutches like a baby at her mother's skirt. Barbara, when will you learn to be independent and to act and think for yourself? I know as well as possible what that cry of Mamma, Mamma means. Always running to me. Touching Lady Britomart's ribs with her fingertips and imitating a bicycle horn. Pip-pip. Highly indignant. How dare you say pip-pip to me, Sarah? You are both very naughty children. What do you want, Barbara? I want a house in the village to live in with Dolly. Dragging at the skirt. Come and tell me which one to take. To Cusins. Six o'clock tomorrow morning, my young friend. End of Act Three. End of Major Barbara by George Bernard Shaw.